Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Simone, I'm the, uh, the REIT sector head here at Hedgeye. Uh, we're uh, kind of doing something quasi on the fly. Um, a very topical issue came up uh, over the last two weeks involving <clears throat> the, uh, the B REIT and the S REIT and, and kind of you know, the trade-offs and, and pluses and minuses of, of non-traded or private REITs versus public REITs in general. So I thought it would be um, interesting and, and fun to invite um, you know, two friends, uh, one, of, one of which I've known for a long time. His name is David Auerbach, uh, both of Armada ETFs, by the way. And then another gentleman who I just recently met, uh, Phil Back, who is the CEO of Armada and has been very um, vocal on Twitter. Uh, recently with a couple of very interesting threads about the B-Read specifically, so I thought it might be you know, useful for everyone to have a discussion. And so, gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Rob. All Great right. to be here. Of course, of course. So why don't you guys uh, go one at a time and introduce yourselves? I, I kind of gave the intro, but let everyone know who you are and what Armada does. Or Phil, you yeah, go first. My name is Phil Bach. Yeah. Sure, yeah, I'm the CEO of Armada ETFs. Uh, background in ETFs, I've done a bunch of things, uh, another startup in ETFs and some other capital markets and, and product work in ETFs. We manage the house ETF, H-A-U-S, um, which, uh, which gives uh, access to residential REITs, publicly traded residential REITs. And that's really how we got into starting to look at this. We were trying to figure out what's the best way to structure this fund. Do we want private REITs? Should we be offering a private REIT fund? Do we like the publics? And we saw the you know, first the evaluation discrepancies and started to do more and more research but led us down this road. But thanks for having us on. It's great to be here. Of course, of course. How about you, David? My name's Dave Auerbach. I'm the managing director of Armada ETFs. So I've been in the REIT industry for almost 25 years, uh, serving as an institutional trader, uh, did a lot of corporate access uh, analyst. Uh, but I joined um, Armada as uh, the managing director to help build out, as Phil talked about, House, the Residential REIT Income Fund. Uh, I put together a REIT management team to help us run this REIT ETF, as Phil talked about. Armada is focused on 25 publicly traded residential REITs comprised of multifamily, single family rentals, senior housing and student, uh, excuse me, um, manufactured housing, sorry, student housing, different sector. Uh, but, you know, it plays very relevant to the B REIT, S REIT conversation. We're really excited to get into this because there's some really great parallels and takeaways from all of this. Yeah, definitely. So obviously, um, <clears throat> you know, for, for folks who haven't been following along day to day, this the B read situation may kind of seem like it it came out of nowhere, but in in reality, as you guys know, it's actually kind of been percolating for a while. Um, and this isn't the first kind of go around this industry, and and I guess you could say um, the the illiquid end market closed end industry has has had going back years. So so Phil, you you kind of. You kind of got the conversation started on many levels. Like I, I personally have been um, talking with clients about what, what we've seen for for a couple months, um, but obviously wasn't as, as out in front and center as you were. So like maybe maybe take us back to the beginning and and walk us through exactly what's happened here and and what um, maybe maybe a step further what folks should be on the lookout going forward. Yeah, and you know it's funny. You know you talked about how. 
this has been going on for a while. It's been discussed for a while. And that's right. It's, you know, I, I kind of put it in one of my posts. I talked about Taleb's, chick, uh, Taleb's turkey, right? The, the well-being of a turkey charted over yeah. 1,001 days. And for 1,000 days, it's well-fed and everyone's happy. And then all of a sudden, boom, Thanksgiving comes and it's the end of the turkey. Um, it's kind of a similar thing where a lot of people saw this coming. I don't think we're the only ones. A lot of people saw the, the divergence between the valuations of, of public and private REITs. A lot of people saw the smoothing issues of the, you know, the returns on the, on the private REITs, obviously, the issues with the appraisal-based NAS. Um, I think, you know, these things didn't really matter, right? As long as the inflows were so great and so many people were buying this thing and, and you know, there was a, a market where, where Blackstone could continue to buy properties and they didn't have to, you know, meet any liquidity demands and everything is up and great and, you know, markets were great and rates were low. There's really no problem. Then all of a sudden we wake up one day and actually, what you know, there is a problem. Right. And there is not enough liquidity available here. And then all of a sudden they have to sell properties and have to sell them at, you know, fantasy valuations. And we can get into that. Mm -hmm. But but all of a sudden now people are starting to realize, hey, maybe there's a bigger risk here than, you know, than than we thought. It, it risk comes quick. Right. It comes quick. And and things that were kind of theoreticals a few months ago are now very, very real possibilities. Yeah. You know, our founder, Keith, um, Keith McCullough likes to say, you know, risk happens like kind of gradually and then all at once. And um, <clears throat> clearly that, you know, for better or for worse, that that's kind of what's happening here. But maybe take a step back, like how, um, maybe explain for folks like mechanically how these vehicles work and, and exactly what the, the issue is underneath the surface between like net redemptions, vis-a-vis -vis asset value, like what, what, what exactly is happening underneath the surface that caused B-Read, and then, and by the way, not just B-Read, S-Read as well, to right, gate right. their funds, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when you're talking about publicly traded rates, right, of course, they trade on the exchange and there's price discovery there. And you can say, as, as Blackstone does, you can say that publicly traded REITs, well, the public markets exacerbate liquidity, they jump around, you know, there, there's, uh, there's too much uh, volatility. Okay, you know, that, that, that could be true, maybe, maybe not. You know, if, if that were the case, you could say that there's also opportunities to take advantage of volatility uh, day to day. But, but let's say that's the case. Let's, com let's contrast it to what we see in the non-traded REIT markets where the valuations are determined by appraisals, right? And the appraisals happen periodically over time. So, you know, every quarter you get your statement from Blackstone and it tells you, well, these things are worth X. Th those numbers are, you know, they're, they're legitimate. There are smart people putting them together and they're using their estimates. But those appraisals happen on a periodic basis. And then you get your valuation, your NAV, that's set based on those appraisals. So, you know, think about it as, as a lag that happens in the valuation of these properties. And it doesn't really matter when things are slow and steady, but when there's a turn in the market, when there's a turn in the uh, real estate markets or in the economy like we had, it takes a while for those appraisal-based valuations to catch up. So if you take, if you chart on one side, you chart the public REITs versus the non-traded REITs, and you chart the performance of the two, you'll see divergences and convergences over time, right? They trade, they, they trade away, one gets away from the other, and then they come together. Um, the divergence between the two has opened up to the widest it's ever been to a, an absurd, laughably uh, level right now that, that there's no way it can be realized in the actual real world. And, you know, I, I don't think that's very much a secret. I think a lot of people are aware of that. And as long as there's enough liquidity, what's, that's great. That's great news. So I've got, a, you know, my fund is at an inflated nav. That's great. If I need to get out, I can get out at a great level. However, all of a sudden we start to see redemption requests pick up. And all of a sudden now Blackstone has to, you know, create more liquidity, which means that they're going to have to sell properties on the, you know, in the real world. And then the NAS can no longer be reflective of the fantasy valuations or of these appraisals or these lagging old appraisals. 
It's going to be what can they get in the market? What can they get today if they have to sell? Well, who are they selling to? Right? The biggest buyer in this market was Blacks. You'd say Starwood was right there with them, right? These private refunds were the market. They were the buyers in this market. Not only are they no longer buyers, right? They are now sellers, forced sellers, forced sellers that have to go out and find liquidity in a market that's being described as frozen, a frozen market. So it's not a good time to be uh, creating liquidity. Now, Blackstone has you know, lines of credit and, and they have CMBS. They have other ways of getting liquidity. And I think what, what, what they've been out with, the messaging that they've been out with is, look, this is really no big deal. We've outlined this in the prospectus. This is a temporary thing. We just need to make, get a little bit of liquidity and then we can ungate the redemptions and everything is back in line. And that might be true. That might be possible if they, if they can pull that off. However, the fact that they've gated redemptions now creates a, um, a psychological, I mean, it creates a reason why you don't want to be last in queue. Yeah. Right. If I need liquidity a year from now, I might want to put in my request now just in case. Right. Because if the line gets longer and longer, it becomes a, uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You get a run on a bank. Um, they have to sell more and more properties with less and less buyers and worse and worse valuations. So there is a huge risk here that um, that what they've kicked off without notice, saying, oh, you know, hey, we're just going to gate these things a little bit. We, you know, we've got all these redemption requests from Asia. We're just going to, you know, manage that and it will be back to normal. I think they've underestimated the social um, anxiety that they've caused by doing so and how that's affected, you know, their their other investors. And again, the possible for the possibility of a, a bank run here is very real. And if there is the price, the, the nav on this thing is going to come crashing down. I mean, there's there's no way around. It. It's going to come crashing down. We can get into the details on how and why. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and by the way, just a, just a quick aside. Um, <clears throat> my guys in the studio just asked uh, everyone who's following along to uh, to refresh the page, refresh the viewer, um, as so as to access the Q and A box for when we get to Q and A at the end of this presentation. But um, Phil, you, you you hit on something interesting there, and and Keith and I had a uh, a back and forth on our <clears throat> what we call the call. It's like supposed to be representative of a a morning research call. We do it every morning with our clients. And you know, Keith posed the question to me, like, what what happened here, or what is Blackstone's kind of you know rationale for doing this? And and I said, sim similar to what you said, and, and I would I would love for you to chime in here and, and tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm missing anything. But I basically said, like, well, regardless of whether or not increased redemptions from Asia is true or not, like, I, I kind of don't care. <laughs> because it, it, like it, it doesn't matter, right? Like one, one, it's the kind of thing where, at least in my opinion, once once you have a gating event, um, it it take it severely limits the options available to the remaining LPs. And, and maybe, maybe comment on that. And David, you chime in too if you'd like. But um, you know, comment on that. But then also like, what what other options do the investors have? And and by the way, who are they? Right. So like this is an interesting question as well, and it and it it speaks to the space that we operate in. In addition to non traded REITs, like who who are the folks that are on the other side of the gate now that are like worried about this becoming existential to them? Yeah. Well, well let me let me take kind of the I'll, I'll hit both of those, and then I want to hear from David. But yeah. Um. You know, in terms of in terms of you know the best case for BlackRock. You know, I think there is this one has been remarkably uh, Blackstone. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this one has been remark. <laughs> this one has been remarkably successful, and their ability to gather to gather inflows in this thing has been phenomenal. 
And I think that may have created a little bit of hubris where they think they're out there and they can create those inflows. Those inflows offset the redemption request. Mm -hmm. And then they're, they're out. They don't even have to sell property. They don't have to mark down any NAVs. They're, they're out scot-free. And, you know, they've been out talking about the historical performance of this fund and the historical volatility of the fund, which to me is very much a mirage. I mean, the smoothing issues on this thing are outrageous, as everyone knows. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, th they think that they can, you know, create that demand and, and that solves their problem. If they can do that, it does solve their problem. I don't think they can, not in this environment, not with not with people being spooked now on the gating of the fund. And, in, you know, in terms of who are the customers, and this is a this is a retail product. This is huge in the wirehouses, huge with financial advisors. And the sad thing about this is, you know, the more and more that people are using portfolio optimizers and outsource asset management, mm -hmm. The more people are using, you know, the, these um, risk metrics, you know, we're going to risk qualify every investor and then, you know, tilt our, our allocation model um, based on that. Well, because of the smoothing issues and because in a zero rate environment, this fund has been such a strong performer with like absolutely no drawdowns. Well, you know, th this fund has been classified by the optimizers as the lowest of low risk. And that means that the investors in this fund are, you know, the, the proverbial widows and orphans, you know, the, the least risk the the least you know the most risk averse investors that we have mm -hmm. which is so sad because you know they're going to be hit with a drawdown here a very significant drawdown and they're the least you know the least willing to to take that they you know this fund has been has been sold to people who it's not appropriate for because mm -hmm. it's been sold as a low risk investment not necessarily marketed as such but sold by the algos by the portfolio optimizers when in fact on a forward looking basis we think there's tremendous downside risk here in mm -hmm. the short term Mm -hmm. Dave, do you have anything to add to that, or do you think, or you might be a mute, David? For the ultra high net worth investor that's got like a hundred million in the bank that's got five million tied up in it, you know they're not losing sleep necessary. For the guy that's got two million in the bank with a half a million locked up into it, they're the ones that are sweating bullets right now. And as the company has already stated, with them basically gating it, you know there's guys that may not be able to get out through. 23 into 24 potentially into 25 mm -hmm. because the real question is now we knew what the line looked like in the middle of december when they when blackstone and starwood put out their announcements but the question is how much has the line grown incrementally over the past week are we talking another five billion sitting in the queue is there 10 billion dollars sitting in the queue what happens if they hit their quarterly number the five percent number on january 1st yeah. what do you do and I think nobody knows the answer to these questions, but clearly, again, this is just, I think, our internal opinion. And you know what they say about people who assume? You can go ahead and assume that 2% are already hit and they're on January 1, that they're going to already have that 2% number when the first, the day the market opens in January. Yeah. So I, you know, first of all, that, that's, that's really useful, like helpful and useful. I, um, <clears throat> I guess like where I settle out on thinking about this is, in, in many respects, um, this needs to be an issue couched around disclosure and fair disclosure. Um, and so I guess my, my, my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion, where this crosses over into like really potentially insidious is when you, when you have people getting up on stage or in an interview that should know better saying, hey, like, you know, we're... Our investors are up 9%, 11%, whatever the number may be, halfway through the year, when everyone else is losing money hand over fist in the markets. Um, like that to me, 
in my opinion, crosses a line because, like, clearly it's based upon dated marks. It's not being marked to market. There's no, like, real-time liquidity. I, I And I've been vocal about this on the call. Like, I personally have an issue on on that. But I guess, like, from, from where you guys sit, in... First of all, what what are the um, the advisors at the end of the distribution pipeline saying to you guys to the extent you've spoken with them at all? Like, what what are they hearing? And B, do you feel like, in your view, this you, it, the people in may have not been the appropriate um, investors for the for the structure? But do you think the disclosure was there, in your opinion, up front, or what's your kind of take of that? Sure, I'll take a. I was going to take a stab at this. First of all, the company will tell you that they do fairly disclose it. You may have to go finding the data, but they do post in their 100 pages of, of uh, prospectus documents when you sign the selling arrangement and the selling agreement. They do state it in the document. So from a client's perspective, they will tell you that they have CYA. That being said, it is not in bold print on the front page of their website, 225, and here's what you're walking into. Mm-hmm. Um, number two... You know, from the advisors and folks we've talked to, i got to be honest, we've heard of a variety of answers that cross the spectrum. Some folks view it as a non-event. Some folks are talking about it internally on a team-by-team basis and, mm-hmm. you know, taking the conversations from their customers or being proactive. And some folks are, re- you know, viewing this as a red, you know, frankly, as a red flag. But you have to understand that a lot of these um, platforms, these big wirehouse platforms, the the Merrills, the Wellses, the UBSs, you know, any of these advisor platforms, and Phil could provide, probably provide some more color there, it's going to take a top-down from the corporate office company mandate mm-hmm. from the bosses to say, no more, take all the money out, um, as opposed to, you know, like a Merrill office in Florida versus a Merrill office in Arizona. Um, I think it's on a team-by-team basis, but I feel like a lot of them are being reflect, uh, responsive to what their clients are saying. The problem is, is that with this hitting every single media outlet possible from you know Twitter to the broadcast channels, mm-hmm. through LinkedIn, through all the Wall Street publications, every single investor is seeing this news in some form or fashion. It's being hit at them 10 different ways every single day. And as Phil started on this call, this is not going away. We're not just going to suddenly wake up on March 17th and they're going to switch a, a flip a switch and everything is back to normal and there's no, no issues. Yep. This is dragging on for a considerable period of time. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and I, I just want to add to that, you know, one of the things that we've heard from a lot of investors is uh, uh, like this reverence for Blackstone. How smart? These are the smartest guys in the market. They're very good at this. They know what they're doing. There's been a lot of goodwill built up over the years from Blackstone and from the portfolio managers of this fund. And what I would tell people is they, they are truly brilliant. I'm sure they are, as was long-term capital management, right? As were many people that have blown up. The fact that they're very smart is not going to save them. It's not going to provide liquidity for them when they need it in a frozen real estate market to, mat- to meet redemptions. And another thing that I think they need to think about is mm-hmm. this is a very expensive fund. It is yes. very expensive. We've got that. That was going to be my next question, by the way. Like understanding the incentives and like, because this is key, right? So go for it. Do do your thing, because this so is really important. We've got selling fees, and they go back to the to the wirehouses, to the home offices. We've got uh, a management fee of 125 basis points. We've got a performance fee of uh, after a five percent hurdle of 12 and a half percent. And you know, we've estimated. There's a lot of assumptions depending on 
what share class of what the performance is in a given year. We've estimated about two and a half billion dollars a year being generated in total uh, in fees from this fund. Mm -hmm. Two and a half billion with a B on this one fund. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of money at stake. Um, and it's a very expensive fund. And I think what investors need to think about is, what are you getting for that money? What's the premium that you're getting versus the public markets, right? Mm -hmm. You can buy VNQ for 12 basis points. We have a fund that we think is a little better. It's nowhere near as expensive as this, right? What are you getting to pay for the premium? The answer is you're getting high valuations and less liquidity, right? Yep. Much less liquidity. So you'd have to wonder, is now a good time to take chips off the table? You know, you made a good call. You were in this thing. It ran up while, while the Fed was accommodative. Is this the time? Before the, you know, before it truly hits the fan, to uh, to get out at a price that might not be attainable another few months from now. Yeah, Rob, I want to. Oh, sorry, go, I, go Dave. I just want to pick up on one point here. Following on the fees, uh, piggybacking on the fees. Let's say um, I don't remember what the cap rate was on the American Campus transaction off the top of my head, so please forgive me. Let's just assume it was a five percent cap, or they bought American Campus. But with the way that the fees are structured. The cost of the investor means that the investor actually wound up buying American Campus at a four cap. And with property values moving the other way, and probably closer now to, let's say, a six and six and a half handle based on where interest rates and current market is gone, how does an investor sitting on a 4% cap rate investment make money when the world's trading at a six handle right now? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's the problem here. When Blackstone's telling you yeah. this is worth foreign change or you know a uh, foreign change and the answer is no it's not the investor is not going to see green on that particular uh, slice of their investment yeah and and you know it's it's funny like so just really quick um <clears throat> i have a specific follow-up question about the fees but like we, we've had a big discussion here at hedgeye about this this new um cap uh, not cap rate but cost of capital regime that we're entering into and, and exactly like kind of what it means for returns and um, forward expectations, all of the above. And and also it, it kind of fits with what we call a quad four. Quad four, we, we kind of model everything around a rate of change concept. And we're in the second of what we think is going to be four consecutive quad fours where we're really, um, you know, you have, it's, it's a, it's a, a second derivative concept where the rate of change of GDP growth and inflation, well, it still could be positive from an absolute you know, perspective or absolute level, is rolling over and is declining on the second derivative. And it usually corresponds to when liquidity is being taken out of the market. And what you guys are describing is really a liquidity issue, right? So like when it's kind of like when the tide's coming out, you understand like, you know, colloquially who's swimming naked, so to speak. And Right now, on the margin, investors, both large and small, are looking for sources of liquidity. They're not net contributors to like closed-end kind of a liquid funds like this. It's not a great setup. And and I guess like one um, one follow-up question or one issue, like Phil, I, I caught it this morning, but related to the fees, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were trying to equate an AFFO multiple. Relative yeah, to that's right. yeah, could you walk through it? Because I think that's a really interesting exercise, and it's something that like I do with my REITs to like normalize for overhead and for capex. I I think that's what you were getting at. I just want to make sure I understand it fully. And for people at I, home, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because again, you know, the important thing here is is I mean that's really a valuation question, right? So what do you, you know, how expensive is this fund? Not in terms of fees to Blackstone, but how expensive are yeah. the you know are you buying in at if you're coming in and um. You know, I, th I think AFO, AFFO is great, you know, as a way to just kind of measure cash flow, right? And, and 
when you look when you look at the way Blackstone is measuring their AFFO, they're adding back in their fees, their their own performance fees and the uh, um, and the management fees into the AFFO and counting that. I don't think that really, to me, just, doesn't really pass the smell test. I mean, you know, if if you if you take their AFFO um, as gospel and you go with that, then their valuations are incredibly overpriced. But if you if you normalize it and you take out the management fees to Blackstone from the AFFO and say, well, how how cheap or expensive are these properties that you're buying into? It yeah. becomes comical. The AFFO is almost four hundred. Yeah. So it's uh it, it's pretty wild. And I think you know again marking the fund at a certain nav over time and, and looking at the historical performance of a fund is different than understanding the value of the property that you're buying that that is you know that a share of the fund represents. Yeah. People need to take that kind of second order due diligence and think about that. What are the properties I'm buying? What are the valuations that I'm buying at that? How does that compare to going out and buying the properties myself or buying them through public REITs? Um, and if they did that analysis, I think they'd see that this is not a very good time to be invested in this fund. Yeah. Rob, just one more part to add on leveraging all your years as a REIT analyst. <clears throat> REITs are valued in three different ways, right? Implied cap rates, NAV, AFFO multiple. Any way you slice it and dice it across all of these three different spectrums, it's just not feasible. Let's take it one by one. They're saying their cap rates are sub four. Markets are trading at five and change right now. Mm -hmm. There's a disparity there. Phil just went to the AFFO multiple angle there. Massive disparity there. NAV analysis. Blackstone saying their stuff's trading at a 9% preempted NAV. Average reads basically right. on a kind of comparable. We're trading around a nine ten percent discount to NAV. So when you know one plus one plus one equals three, how is it all of these things are pointing to the sign that things are going against what Blackstone's doing, but they're telling you, no, 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 those guys are wrong. We're just better operators. We know what we're doing. Yeah. And again, we're not discounting the properties. You have to understand they own high quality properties. It's a high quality management team. We understand all of that. But if you basically try to replicate it using our publicly traded REITs and you really try, you know, use VG to cover gaming and use, you know, agree to cover net lease and some of this other stuff. You just can't get there. You just can't get there to their number on the public versus private. It's just not possible. It's it's not possible. And you know, you know what I would compare it to? It's kind of like the old um, <clears throat> externally managed REIT argument in the public markets, right? So like, you can have the best assets, like the highest of high quality A assets, like an let's take um, like ILPT, for example. I'm just going to throw that one out there, right? Um, fine portfolio, but when you, when you stick an external management structure that's like bleeding fees to the, to the, you know, the mothership or like the, the sponsor, and then you layer on obscene leverage, it, it's going to trade at a discount in the market. And if you don't take into account those structural factors over and above the real estate, it, you're, you're going to come to a, the wrong conclusion, potentially. But um, You absolutely nailed it, because it applies yeah. to pretty much across the REIT spectrum for the publicly traded REITs. Yes. If they're externally oh, advised, oh, there's, always a, red, <laughs> there's always a red flag with them that, that's tied with that association. No question about it. As a longtime REIT trader, yeah. working with a lot of your colleagues, everybody says the exact same thing, and they still say that to this point, to this day. To this day, yeah. Okay, so uh, by the way, guys, like we're, <laughs> this is actually incredible. We're, we're getting like smashed with questions. So before um, I open it up, because uh, I, I would love to give people as much time as possible uh, to make it interactive with you. Uh, my question, so where I'm, I'm really trying to focus my time um, as a public read analyst is to, to think and handicap about 
and, and maybe you guys do too, running like a public read ETF, like what implications does this have potentially for um, the public markets? And I'll, I'll give away like kind of my thinking, you know, I just, I just look at B-Read and where they allocated their capital, like lots of Sunbelt Resi, right? So they bought BRG, they bought APTS, they obviously have a huge industrial portfolio, you know, you mentioned ACC. Like the interesting question to me is what happens when, um, for better or for worse, a market where they were the largest, you know, presence at the auction, effectively kind of for this chunkier stuff, like, I don't know, goes no bid. And and what happens when, you know, a lot of these, for let's just talk about Sunbelt. I know you guys are in this business, but Sunbelt apartments, like valued at a five cap, like, well, okay, what happens when they're valued at a six <laughs> when the bid ask widens? So I don't know, like, that's where my mind is, but what do you, what, how are you guys thinking about it in your fund? I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a stab at it and then Phil can clean me up here. You know, I think based off of the quality of the portfolio, you know, we know, as, as Phil said, they were always the natural buyer. Now they're the natural seller. They're the ones sitting on the sell, on the selling side of the table. But also, in the same breath, we know most likely who those buyers are going to be. Chances are, it's going to be the publicly traded REITs, their competitor, their competitive peers. It's going to be sovereign wealth funds or you know, sell side bulge bracket firms, you know, doing these big private uh, mandates and stuff. And so, I think on a city like you know, you mentioned Sunbelt Apartments, you know, so if there's a portfolio that comes up for sale in Dallas or uh, you know, in Austin, there's going to be a natural pool of buyers there. If it's a property that's in Provo, Utah, you're right. What happens if it goes no bid and then it kind of goes on the market i don't necessarily see the company doing fire sale type pricing unless it really becomes a you know a really major going concern issue and we're not implying that it is but you know i don't see them really necessarily doing fire sale pricing but i think from the public perspective you know again this emphasizes the what the why public trade reads we talk about that liquidity getting in and out we know where the markets are going with these publicly traded guys we could talk about you know your favorite company rob invitation homes you know they really they do a good job of here's where we're buying at here's the cap rate here's our average going in price you know they disclose that we are not whether it's on a press release on a transaction that they did on a quarterly earnings call you know they give us that information versus the private REITs, you have to wait for them to tell you once a month what your NAV is worth. You have to wait for them to publish a quarterly report to tell you what the property is worth. And I think with the publicly traded guys, they're kind of guiding towards where the private market is going right now, as Phil keeps on with that lag indicator here, that there's no question about it. The public assets have reset here from the start of this year. We already know that because the market has dictated that with the way the interest rates have moved. And I don't see that that readjusting next year i don't see this having a major reset so this issue is going to carry into 20 you know at this point 23 well into 24. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's amazing it, it is a new liquidity regime and uh you know you don't want to be you know you want to have liquidity when this thing turns. we all saw this coming and i think you know you look at certain markets you look at crypto you look at non-profitable tech you look at some startups there's a lot of people suddenly searching for liquidity that took it for granted over the last several years you don't think about your uh, low volatility private refund as being, you know, the the desperate um, searchers of that liquidity. You think that they're going to be fine, and uh, you know, because because of the liquidity issues that that they've had, because of the structure of the fund, they are, and it's very unfortunate. Um, as long as we stay in this regime, it's going to be it's going to be very diff- very difficult for them. And again, you know, I agree with David. I don't think we're talking about uh, you know a fire sale, but we are talking about a very significant drawdown. From the NAVs that people are expecting, the NAVs that have been reported, a yep. very significant drawdown that, yep. you know, I don't, I don't know if all their investors are prepared for. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And okay, so I want to go into question, questions, but I have, I have one more for you guys. And ju just to be fair um, <clears throat> and objective, like everything has trade-offs, right? So what, um, to your guys' mind, if, if you lined up publicly traded REITs and then either, you know, private or NTRs or non-traded REITs on the other side, like what, tick, tick through the attributes, like what, what are the puts and takes for each of them? Um, just, just to like kind of get people, give people a framework on how to like evaluate these two structures against each other. Well, I mean, you know, you're talking about a liquidity difference is the main thing. But I'd mm -hmm. say now at this point in time, which may or may not be the case forever, but you're talking about a valuation, mm -hmm. a very significant valuation difference where, you know, you could say that the publicly traded REITs you like or don't like their valuations or what your forward estimates are. That's up for discussion. And that's a fair discussion. But on the non-traded REITs, you're looking at valuations that are just frankly not attainable in the real world, in the real market. And as you know, more of these buyers become sellers or force sellers because of redemptions and they need liquidity, there's going to be a true up between the two. There's yeah. going to be a true up between at least, you know, if not in full, in, in most between the private and the public reach. We're talking about properties that have very similar characteristics and there's no reason for a sustained 20, 30, 40% delta between the two. Yep. Rob, if you take if you take your favorite read, let's just use the biggest one like Simon, just hypothetically, use Simon Property Group. Sure. You got 25 analysts that are out there to tell you what Simon's NAV is, NAV is what They're their average wrong. cap rate is. Well, <laughs> but what I'm getting is you can yeah, get yeah, a yeah. range. You can get a general range from 25 analysts of here's where we're at. Yeah, yeah. And if we a, adjust a marker, the cap rate by a, of course, yeah. If we adjust the cap rate by a tick, here's where that number goes. And if we lower it, here's where that number goes. But you have 25 guys to check that, that number off of, and the company will tell you, dude, you're right, you're wrong, that's Absolutely. great, Good, you know, no chance. Blackstone ain't going to tell you anything. Yeah. You don't have 25 guys covering Blackstone because there is nothing there to go through because we're doing this model ourselves, and literally, we're, you know, and we're talking with us, and everybody has a different number that they're coming up with. So, you know, Blackstone isn't telling you, you nailed your, you've nailed our cap rate on departments. Yeah, you're way off on our industrial. Nobody's giving that information versus the public guys that are more than happy to tell you what that, what that number is. Yep. Okay, so let, let me uh, let me because uh, honestly, th this is great for you guys because um, I've I've actually never seen the question queue fill up this uh, this large. So um, I'm just gonna pepper you with some, it, it, you know, and we'll make it interactive with folks. So the first <clears throat> the first one's from Mike. I actually think I know who this is, but Mike, uh, is Beery really going to be a forced seller here? They have the ability to completely gate the fund, or how do you? How I do mean, you... is that is that a better outcome? You know, hmm. they have. I mean. Yeah, that's a possibility, but I don't think anybody wants that. Um, yeah. Well, let's say look, like, they have a port they have a portfolio that they're marketing apparently of lower quality industrial uh, stuff that they bought from PSB. You know, they're probably going to sell American Campus some of the you know lower quality assets of American Campus. Mm -hmm. Same with APTS, same with Blue Rock, and all this stuff. So they have assets that they can monetize here based off of the cost. The question then becomes. What do you start doing? Because from historically, Rob, for all of our years, if you know what Blackstone's MO is, let's use Hilton, let's use La Quinta, let's use one of these previous transactions they've done. They buy out a company, it sits on the book for two years, they put a new coat of paint on the property, a new sign on the front door, and they turn around and they relist it back to the market. And they sell the same part part of me, shit, right back to the market all over again. And so they don't, they have to, some of the stuff, they have to sit there and hold it for two years. Mm -hmm. They can't just fire sale it necessarily. They can call and cherry pick some assets here and there, but I think we're not going to see them suddenly 
monetize QTS next year just to raise $750 million, a billion dollars, to satisfy second quarter redemption requests. Yeah. Well, let's say, um, <clears throat> let's say they did uh, completely gate the fund. Maybe, maybe an interesting question is, like, what, what would be Blackstone's incentives to do that? Because, like, you know, in the, in, I, I went through this right out of college. It's, it's kind of game over when you do that, right? Like, good luck ever raising money again if you, I don't know. I, and that may or may not be true in this, in this scenario. <laughs> I, have a dumb, I have a dumb answer. I mean, again, Phil can educate me here. If you gate the fund, that means you've capped how much is in there, which means you can keep collecting the fees on the amount of money that's in there versus if you let money go out the door, that's less money that you're able to collect on fees, right? Yeah. So if you're basically saying, we're locked down, we're at a, a billion dollars, great, that means we're raking in X percent on fees on a rolling basis and nobody else is getting out. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, all right, let me um, let me keep going down because, again, there are a lot of them. Um, this is from, uh, from Stuart. <clears throat> Excuse me. B-Read has a massive gain on interest hedges. Is it normal for these private REITs to buy rate hedges? It was a great call. Doesn't that offset some of the pending markdowns? Yeah, I, I had the number on it. I think it was 4.4% or so that they made last year on that. Um, I think that's right. 6% uh, from interest rate hedges, and, and that was a great trade. Um, again, you know, at the end of the day, if you're trying to get access to, uh, you know, to, to real estate, to tangible, if you like hard assets and you want access to, you know, what what is generally a very stable asset class, you want to know that, you know, if, if they can make money on the fringes, they probably lose it on the fringes too. But, you know, is that the bet that you're making as an investor in view? Is that the bet that you want to continue making? Or do you want to make that bet separately? Or, you know, if they can enhance the yield, that's great. At the end of the day, the core issue here, the core issue is the properties that they own. The valuations of those properties today, the valuations of those properties at the time that they're going to sell them or at the time that you can get liquidity on the way out of where the nav is. Um, and I think, the, you know, the other stuff is it's nice. Maybe that'll offset the fees, you know, or some of the fees. And, and that that's that's a, certainly a good thing um, as long as it's working. Yep. Um, OK, so the, here's a good one. Um, and I actually don't I should know the answer to this, but I don't, I don't know the answer to it. This is from Bob in Houston. How, um, how I guess how much leverage does does BRE carry in the structure? AKA how how leverage are the assets? If these properties are bought at bought at three and four percent cap rates with like you know illustratively a sixty percent LTV, um, and you know from from the time they were purchased, little or no increase in NOI, or maybe even NOI declines next year, new appraisals at five to six percent could wipe out the equity. So like how do we know like how much leverage is tucked in there? Phil or, Phil or Dave, I'm not sure. So, yeah, we're working on a model, actually. So so we have, we're working on some analysis. We don't have anything today on that. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. We do have on that, that that's kind of early stages. That's the next. We wanted to get through um, some of the stuff that I put out today. Um, but yeah. we're going to be answering that over the next week. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Yeah, we can follow up on that. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question, too, because that, that would is. also, like, help help explain the incentive set in a way. Um, okay, this is from Mike. Uh, or actually, before that one. Um, oh, no, no, this is a good one. Actually, this is a good one <clears throat> from Mike. Hi, guys. I'm involved in a private REIT focused on industrial mission-critical properties. Management seems to have done a good job over the last five years, consistent conservative growth of determined share value. Uh, so that would, again, for the people at home, that would be the, the stated NAV, not your distributions. Um, and a 6% yield on top of it. Fully leased portfolio. What should I be asking them? Thanks. 
I would be asking them about smoothing issues. When you talk about consistent conservative growth, that's exactly what BREITs provided. And it's a great thing. It's what we all want. Right. But the question is, is that a function of you know the lags in the appraisal process? In fact, that they're setting the NAV slowly over time, if comparable um, if comparable instruments are being marked to market on a daily basis, you'd see a very different picture of volatility. Um, this is something Cliff Asses has been calling it volatility laundry, where, you know, you've got a structural difference here, which is, you know, less beneficial to the end investor. I think transparency and liquidity are good things. So it's, it's worse to the investor, but it's being turned around and marketed as a good thing because at the end result, you're showing, you know, much less volatility. You know, if, if I, if I take my daily, you know, trading account and only look at it once a quarter, it's going to look a lot better. If I use appraisals instead of mark to market, it's going to look yet better. So when we talk about consistent and conservative growth, that's a wonderful thing. It's what we all want. It's great. It's great in, you know, in private equity funds, in venture funds. It's great in, in non-traded refunds. But at the end of the day, comparing that to your publicly traded uh, funds is, you know, really not an apples to apples comparison. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, I think the most important thing is your time frame uh, as an investor in these things. I think, you know, I, I can't speak to, you know, the fund that this guy owns. I don't know what it is, you know, but but even as we talk about BREIT and Blackstone, these are very high quality properties. These yeah. are these are properties sure. that I personally would love to own for the for the long term. Um, our concern is not that, you know, this is going to go to zero. Or these are garbage. Right? That's not the case. The concern is that the valuations right now are not in line with reality and there's going to be a drawdown. And if there's an exacerbation of liquidity demands and, and redemption requests. It's only going to make that drawdown worse and worse and worse. And, you know, investors need to think about getting out in front of that, not being the last one in line on the way out. I'll take a quick stab at this. You know, if you look at like the industrial guys, everybody, everybody's done very well the past few years since industrial has been one of the darlings of the, you know, publicly traded REIT sector, right? So everybody did well as things were going up. Look at what's happened to Amazon, though, as Amazon started giving back some of their industrial space because they basically took down too much during COVID. What happened to those guys that had that exposure to Amazon? And the answer is they sold off because they felt that, you know, who's going to turn around and lease a million square feet again? How are we going to fill this? How are we going to backfill this space? My takeaway here is that you see how people do when things are going up, but you really see how a good operator does when things are going down and so as a result you know i would be curious to see you know to find out from that other sponsor what happened in the last cycle mm -hmm. when things weren't going up as heady as they have been the past couple of years <clears throat> what did the redemption queue look like for you guys back then are you guys getting the phone calls now that we're seeing down the street from some of these other guys when we started these conversations last you know a couple of weeks ago and it was just talking about me read i went out I'm like hey if i'm starwood I, I go on offense put this message out hey this is what's happening down the street isn't happening to us unfortunately they were in that same position it's so not i'm one of these other non-traded weeks you know is i'm not saying that everybody is going through the exact same issue that b read s read is but if I'm not having those issues, you got to go on offense to control that narrative saying, hey, guys, we're, we're fine. We're, we're sound. We're not seeing redemptions. We could satisfy requests. We're a-okay. And I don't see people going out and doing that right now. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so maybe a, maybe a couple more here. So this one from my, uh, my buddy Marty. <clears throat> um, which property types do you guys think Blackstone is most likely to sell to meet future redemption requests? And I know which Marty that is as well. <laughs> okay. 
Hi, Marty, from both Bill and I, too. You know, I would say right now they're going to probably go with where the strengths have been going. So I do see them selling some of the single-family rental stuff. I could see them selling some of the high-quality apartment. I could see them selling industrial, again, because that is where, you know, the pricing is going. Data center doesn't seem right now as hot as it was a couple of years ago. I don't know if they're, I don't think they're up on the QTS investment. Again, there's guys that would know better than I do when it comes to that. But again, as we look at the high quality portfolio, I think they're going to focus, you know, kind of on that where the puck is going and where can we get the most out for bang for our buck. And so, again, they're high quality industrial. Some of their Sunbelt assets, they know there will be a natural buyer sitting at the table. They could easily monetize as opposed to, again, that one-off property in Provo, Utah. Yep, yep. Um, you know, these are bouncing around. I just had a good one. Oh, here we go. Um, <clears throat> this is a good one. And actually, it's, it's something we haven't talked about yet, but it, it really matters. Uh, given the size uh, that, that real estate became as a, like a portion of Blackstone's pie over the past decade, but w- what, kind, <laughs> what kind of, you know, again, like, without being too presumptive, what kind of impact does the redemption liability have on Blackstone stock? What would you say to investors in the stock who are hanging on because of Blackstone's dividend? I actually think this is a fascinating question. It's a really good question. It's a yeah. really good question. And, and I think it's, it's very material. So, yeah. you know, again, we estimated, and this isn't, it's, it's a tough, we have to make a lot of assumptions in the fee model. Um, not all the money is going directly to Blackstone. There are selling fees that are shared out with partners, but we estimate a total of two, two and a half billion dollars on average, uh, going into Blackstone at current AUM levels, um, into this fund. Two and a half billion dollars every year. That is material. Mm-hmm. And there's B-Cred as well, which, you know, has some similar issues. So mm-hmm. it is a, a very material impact. I think the reputational impact is also very, very much, um, in play here. Uh, it's, it's, any any investor in Blackstone needs to be monitoring the situation. Yep. Um, okay. Let's see. This one's from. <clears throat> this is uh, from Peter. Uh, could Blackstone provide clients of BREIT with their funds from other Blackstone capital sources? Is that possible? I don't think. I don't know. Mm. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to say, but it's hard to imagine the mechanism to do so. Yeah, that'd be tricky. That that'd probably be. I, I imagine that. Well, it's like an FTX scenario. Um, well, but, <laughs> not to but like, wait. <laughs> question. What's, what's but that? Question, but question, guys. Didn't they? Didn't they sell these Vici? Didn't they sell these Vici assets? You know, these assets to Vici. And again, that, that I, don't know, I don't think that was. Um, I guess that was held in B because that was part of the B class. So yeah. Um, Back up. Disregard. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, okay, so the, maybe like two, two more. Just, just being, um, being respectful of your guys' time, and you guys have been awesome and so generous with it, and, and we and everyone really, really appreciate it. But, um, our, this is from RW. As a multi-decade real estate professional, I'm not convinced this is a lead. This is leading to a crisis for Blackstone, Starwood, or the market generally. The gates are not 100% just limited. Investors are getting getting out, have a chance to get out at above market values for now, which will compress. Um, that's not really a question. Uh, it's more of a comment. I'll take, so, I'll, oh, I'll take oh, a stab at well, wait, there, um, it. Wait, so then it continues. In the coming months, this is also a potential arbitrage opportunity. Sell your B REIT or S REIT, but buy public tr- publicly traded REITs, but we'll see. So it was a two-part. So, sorry, yeah. I want to say on the first part, obviously, if he puts his million dollar order in for December to try to get out, 
and they're saying that they're only going to fill three-tenths of one percent, that means he's got to go back on January 1st to redeem $997,000. And then goes back in February, goes back in March. I mean, at this point, if you put your request in, you may not be out in 23. Yeah. You may not be out into 24. And so it's not necessarily saying that's going to cause a run. It's the fact that you just can't get out of your position as the queue grows. And I think this, this is our takeaway is that investors are basically taking the gains off the table of the private REITs because all the publicly traded guys are basically trading at discounts to NAV if they see better opportunity in the publicly traded markets. And by the way, if I want to get get out of my million dollar position in Simon Property Group, boom, take a report, you're done. You sold a million dollars worth of Simon just like that. If I want to get out of my million dollars of B REIT, you're not going to be talking a year from now, twelve months to this exact day, and I may still not be out of my million dollar position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, that, I, that arbitrage oh, opportunity is—I'm uh, sorry—that arbitrage opportunity is significant in our view. And you know, we've normalized that. Uh, we we created to do the valuation comparisons. We created a portfolio that mimics, you know, Blackstone using publics as best we can by geography, by subsector, by every variable we could think of. And there is a very substantial arbitrage. The problem is, I don't know how you can get liquidity to enact that arbitrage on Blackstone. But but if you can, if you can find a way to make that play, um, I agree that there is a very significant opportunity here. And that that's even, you know, regardless of the doomsday scenario. So I, I agree with his first comment too, that said that, you know, this may not be the end end of the world. They might be able to they might be able to get past this. They can, you know, stem the tide of redemptions or create enough demand that they can use inflows to offset the redemption request, mm-hmm. then they can wait this out and, and they'll probably be fine. There's no guarantee. The the problem is um you know the psychological um the psychological uh, fears that they have created, which I think they've under underestimated by gating the fund in potentially creating that run on a bank. It's not, you know, we're dealing with probabilities, not certainties here. And the probabilities and the possibilities of that run on a bank scenario have gotten much, much more real because they've gated the fund and since they've gated the fund. Mm-hmm. Okay, so last, well, one quick one for me. Do you guys think that this is going to, like, evolve into kind of like a rolling gating quarter by quarter? That's how I, I imagine it going, right? Because like at this point, to your, you can't really afford to be last in line. So like, everyone's gonna, everyone's gonna redeem, or like a significant portion is gonna redeem. And at the same time, your nav is compressing. At least theoretically, you're gonna trip that five percent like every quarter, and it's just gonna roll, right? I mean, am I, am I thinking about that the right way structurally? That's exactly how we anticipate this playing. Yeah, you know, just like you know, you had the crowding effect, and, and everything went in on, on the way up. It, you know, it looked like one thing. And then a slow release on the way out. Blackrock trying to uh, Blackstone trying to control, <laughs> um, you know, that with the gating trying to control it so that they can buy time and and sell these properties the right way and not have to panic sell. Um, and I I think that's very likely how it will end up playing out. Got it. Okay, last one. Um, so this is from Bill. <clears throat> in in an illiquid market, private real estate equity or NACREF underwriting refuses to mark down. Um, you know, hiding behind, quote, there are no there are no market transactions to demonstrate the markdown. This represents a structural flaw in the professional appraisal industry. How will it change? Do you guys have a view on that? It likes so I guess maybe like what's the um what's the what breaks the logjam there, right? To I, I will say Bill's the second guy that has comment has called out the appraisers. Mm-hmm. And we've in like as many days this is the second guy that's called out the appraisers. Mm-hmm on these deals. And so uh, 
not to speak for Phil, but yes, I think the appraisers are going to be scrutinized on this after the fact because you know rob from where we sit what is never a good sign is when you start staring at the tape and you start seeing all the law firms filing class action lawsuits against various REITs because of uh a, a story or whatever it is and i'm sure the law firms would be you know chomping at the bit to get inside a b REIT and what's going on there when it comes to the appraisers because i have a feeling that's who it's going to be going after so. Yeah, and, and I mean, I don't think the appraisers are, you know, are, you know, I think they're great at what they do, right? The problem is that when you do an appraisal, you know, that value sticks until you do the next appraisal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're on a, a cycle that's just very slow. And when the market is turning as much as it did recently, when the market's moving as fast as it is, and, uh, you know, to the downside, those appraisals go stale very quickly. It's not the fault of the appraiser, but they do go stale. And uh, the NAVs don't reflect it. Yep. I was just going to say one, one more thing. If I don't like what CBRE appraises my properties for, I can bring in Collier's. And if they give me a better number, guess what? CBRE, you're fired. Collier's, you're taking the position. And if I don't like what they tell me next, because again, Blackstone's supposed to have deep coffers. They can replace these guys on the, the fly. The rating right? agency so, probably, right? Yeah. Like, we're going to get the rating we want. Like, yeah. I'm going to find that's the exactly best guy that's going to value my properties scene. the highest dollars. Yeah, I know. I know. This is exactly what I was thinking of a scene in the big short where... Uh, I watched it last says, night. Oh, you know, yeah. give them the rating, they'll go to Moody's, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, this was, guys, this was awesome. Um, I'm sure, like, I'm getting, like, tremendous feedback in real time from folks. So it's very, uh, it's very topical. It's very I, timely. Oh, yeah, David, go for it. Absolutely. I was just going to say, if, you know, we really appreciate doing this. This is, this is why we're doing this. If anybody has any questions, please feel free to reach out to us at Armada ETFs, www.armadaetfs.com. You can get in touch with both Phil and myself. We'd be happy to follow up with people if there are questions as you know i don't know if how active uh, many of your guys are on twitter we know that there's a big twitter following on hedgeye we, we, uh, dab we dabble um, a little bit <laughs> phil phil is very approachable on twitter at phil uh what is it at phil bach one um where you know we, we could answer these questions so we want to make sure that we say to the people here that just because we're ending our conversation here yeah. right now doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to answer the questions. Please follow up with us, armadaetfs.com. We run the residential REIT income ETF, the ticker is house, H-A-U-S. Because again, we're focused on about 55 to 6% of this B-REIT portfolio when it talks about single family res uh, residential, again, in the publicly traded market. So we think we have a good proxy for a good portion of this B-REIT portfolio. Yep. Phil, you want to leave us with anything before we, uh, before we break or? No, that's great. Really appreciate this, and uh, thanks for your time and for all the listeners' time. Absolutely, you guys. Thanks, are, Rob. You guys are always welcome. Thank you very much, and thank you everyone for joining us. Um, I'm pretty sure we'll have this up on YouTube for uh, a replay. And uh, until next time, see you soon. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations, brought to you by Hedgeye. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. 
Edge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the contents. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.